You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to NeuroFrontiers, produced in cooperation with the American Academy of Neurology. Your host is Dr. Anthony Alessi, Chief of Neurology at William W. Backus Hospital. While the prevalence of migraine in Americans has remained fairly constant over the past 15 years, our knowledge of migraine and the treatment options for migraine have grown significantly. What have we learned most recently about migraine and about vascular risk associated with migraine? Joining us to discuss the latest research on treating migraine and vascular risks associated with migraine is Dr. Steven Silverstein, Professor of Neurology and Director of the Jefferson Headache Center at Thomas Jefferson University. Dr. Silverstein, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you very much for having me today. Dr. Silberstein, how would you define migraine for our listeners? Migraine is a recurrent episodic headache disorder associated with nausea, vomiting, sensitivity to light, to sound, and to odors. Are all migraine patients at somewhat higher risk for stroke? No. You need to make a distinction between migraine with and without aura. The aura is the focal neurological signs and symptoms that occur before or during a migraine attack. And what it appears is that patients who have migraine with aura, which it occurs in about 20% of patients with migraine, are at a higher risk for stroke than patients with migraine without aura. Well, Dr. Silberstein, for the practicing physician, you're in the emergency room. How can you differentiate migraine with aura from a TIA? It's something that really is a challenge for most practicing physicians, and especially in the ED. First and foremost, how long did it last? A TIA tends to come on fairly quickly and then goes away. A migraine evolves over time. For example, the average aura of migraine lasts for 5, 10, 15, or even 20 minutes and continues to evolve over that period of time. Let me give you an example. In migraine, you may start to see flashes of light in your visual field that will grow and grow and grow over a period of 30 minutes to an hour. In contrast, if you were to have a TIA, you might become suddenly weak, suddenly numb, or suddenly have visual symptoms. It's not this slow, progressive change that you would see in a patient with either epilepsy or with a TIA. Also, the symptoms are quite distinct. Migraine phenomena are predominantly sensory and visual. Visual is number one, sensory is number two, and occasionally it's motor. But if the symptoms are atypical or short in duration, it's very difficult to tell the difference. Carrying that same scenario further, you go ahead and do an MRI on the patient with a migraine with aura, and you're still not positive if they've had a TIA or not. What would happen if you started to see abnormalities on the MRI? There are many patients now with migraine who have these so-called white spots. There are two types of white spots you see. One of these deep white matter abnormalities, and the other are what we call posterior circulation infarcts. These are associated with high migraine frequency and migraine with aura as opposed to migraine without aura. These are not probably the result of a stroke at the time of the aura, but are probably a result of having migraine phenomena itself. We don't know what happens to them over the course of time. We don't know if patients have them before they got the migraine or after they got the migraine. We will know the answer to that. There's a new study that's following up patients who had MRIs in the past and see what happens to them in the future. 
Well, Dr. Silverstein, carrying that even a little bit further, you know, whenever we see a patient with migraine with aura, we're always told not to use ergots because of the vasoconstrictive effect. Does that still hold true? And is it safe to use a tryptan in a patient with migraine with aura? The people that did all the original studies on the tryptans have actually specifically studied migraine with aura. And what they found was the following. There's absolutely no problems with safety. But if you give an injectable, for example, sumatriptan, during the aura of migraine, before the headache begins, it doesn't work any better than injectable placebo. It's safe to give triptans during the aura of migraine, but particularly if you're using an injectable, it may not be effective until the headache begins. A lot of times we're seeing this association between not just migraine with aura, but any migraine with persistent foramen ovale. What's the relationship between the two, or is there one? We now know the following. The prevalence of patent foramen ovale in the population is about 20%. If you have migraine without aura, it's also 20%. But if you have migraine with aura, it's closer to 40%. What does that mean? We don't know. There have been studies that have closed the PFOs in patients with migraine with or without aura, and there was no difference between closing them and not closing them in terms of what happens to migraine. We don't know if it's a problem with the study or problem selection, but at this point in time, we're not sure what the effects of closing a PFO has on migraine. Will it alter your treatment? No. If a patient has a PFO, what we typically tell them is, don't do anything about it unless it's a cardiac reason for doing something until we have better evidence. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to NeuroFrontiers on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and joining us to discuss the latest research on treating migraine and the vascular risks associated with migraine is Dr. Stephen Silberstein, professor of neurology and director of the Jefferson Headache Center at Thomas Jefferson University. Dr. Silberstein, what type of preventive treatment is available for patients who suffer from migraine? In the United States at this point in time, I believe there are four drugs that are approved by the FDA for the treatment of migraine, two beta blockers, divalproic sodium, and topiramate. There are a number of other drugs which we use off-label, most common of which are the antidepressants such as amitriptyline or Elevil. In terms of scientific evidence, it would appear that all those drugs plus amitriptyline have good evidence for efficacy. When do you recommend treating migraine either as an acute treatment or using a preventive treatment? That's an excellent question. All patients need acute treatment for their migraine when they get a severe attack or disabling attack. The more severe, the more disabling, the more likely it'll respond to a triptan as opposed to a low-end medication like a non-steroidal or aspirin combination. If patients have frequent attacks, if the attacks don't respond appropriately to acute medication, if there's any symptoms that are worrisome, such as hemiplegic or basilar migraine, or if the patients are in a situation but they just can't afford to have a migraine attack, your surgeon, it's not a good idea to have one while you're operating. Those patients are candidates for prevention. What do you usually use as the number of headaches per month that kind of tip you over towards going to preventive from acute? We now know yeah. that if you have one or more headaches per month, that's the risk factor for chronic daily headache. We are now suggesting that if a patient has one or more migraines per week, that's an indication for preventive treatment. Is there a patient who would really not be a good candidate for preventive medication? If a patient were to have a migraine attack every six months, 
It really doesn't make sense to put them on a preventative medication. How about some of the side effects to the preventive medications? We talked a little bit about which ones are available, but can we talk a little bit about some of the side effects that we should counsel our patients on? Most of the medications, with the exception of Topamax or Topiramate, are associated with weight gain. That's important because many women and men don't want to keep gain weight with their medication. Individually, the beta blockers can produce trouble in athletes. It can produce fatigue or lethargy. Divalproic sodium, which is also improves, is associated with weight gain, hair loss, tremor, and in rare instances, liver problem. Amitriptyline or Elevil is associated with weight gain and sleepiness. The pyramid, although it produces weight loss, in some patients is associated with cognitive dysfunction. So every drug is a balance. For that reason, many of us will use non-pharmacologic treatment, such as biofeedback and relaxation, either alone or as an adjunct to drug treatment, enabling us to reduce the drugs and decrease side effects. One of the side effects that's gained attention, and you mentioned topiramate, not just with weight loss, but renal calculi and the forming of kidney stones. Do you frequently monitor that when you have someone on topiramate? The two more uncommon side effects with topiramate are one, glaucoma, which is actually an allergic reaction to the chemical entity, and occurs one in 100,000. And we tell our patients, if you have any eye pain and trouble things, see an ophthalmologist immediately and discontinue the medication. In terms of renal stones, we tell the patients to become well hydrated. And two, since the population risk of renal stones is about 1% to 2%, we warn them about that, and we tell them that they have a renal stone, try to find out what it is so that it can be treated. Because if I'm not mistaken, there is a different type of stone in patients who take Topamax compared to the patients who don't. How about women with migraine who are on a birth control pill? Is that safe to do? Can women who have migraine start a birth control pill? You know, this is always something that's under discussion from the practicing physician. Extremely important question. In the old days, with the higher dose birth control pills, there was a problem. Today, with the lower dose estrogen, birth control pills, it's not as much of a problem. We can make some general statements. Birth control pills that everybody should be used with caution, above the age of 35 and very extreme caution in patients who are smokers and hypertensive. With those caveats, no smoker, no hypertension below the age of 35, there's no increased risk in a woman with migraine without aura below the age of 35. If a patient has migraine with aura, there is an increased risk and the risk increases in the presence of hypertension and smoking. So I would say in the absence of aura, use it without any trouble. In the presence of aura, with caution and extreme caution in the presence of hypertension and or smoking. You know, Dr. Silverstein, you've already mentioned some of the factors. Is there a profile of a patient where it raises your level of alertness to the possibility of stroke and migraine? You mentioned some of the risk factors of smoking and hypertension. Are there others? Is it gender-related? I think the major risk factor is only gender in the sense that women use birth control pills with estrogen-containing birth control pills. And in many of the studies, it appeared in the younger women, there was more of a risk for women compared to men. But in terms of the population, if you can eliminate things that should be eliminated in everybody, like don't smoke, keep your blood pressure under control, keep your weight under reasonable control, exercise regularly. I think those are the major issues that anybody with or without migraine should do. 
You've touched on another subject, and let's continue with that, the subject of exercise and migraine headaches. Over years, there have been reports where daily exercise and periodic exercise help patients with chronic migraine headaches. Have you found that in your practice and in your experience with patients? Absolutely. And what we try to do as soon as the patients are under some degree of reasonable control, get them in a regular exercise program. We also know, for example, the following. In patients with migraine, one of the risk factors for developing chronic daily headache or migraine more than 15 days a month is obesity. So by exercising, you decrease weight, you decrease that, and we think that exercise itself is a good preventative treatment for migraine. Any particular type of exercise you recommend over others? I think it's important that as part of your exercise program, you do some aerobic exercise, brisk walking. I think muscle strengthening is good. Anything that strengthens the core muscles, so any patient with migraine have bad posture, and by strengthening the core muscles, it actually decreases one of the triggers for migraine. Let's talk a little bit about the future of migraine treatment in terms of prevention and acute treatment. What do you see as the future in terms of what's coming down the pike for us to know about the future of treating patients with migraine? The thing that's currently in development is a medication, which is a CGRP or calcitonin, gene-related peptide antagonist, which is currently in clinical trials and hopefully will be approved by the FDA in the next year or two. And that's being developed by Merck, Beringer, Engelheim, and several other companies are also developing calcitonin gene-related peptide antagonists. And I think that will be the next thing. It will have the advantages of the triptans. The other thing we'll notice about that is the fact we'll not have the cardiovascular risk factors of the triptans. In terms of future treatment, we talked a little bit about treatment from a pharmacologic standpoint. How about non-pharmacologic treatments for migraine? Do you use any of the complementary therapies? We do all the time, and I think it's important to realize the major difference between alternate medicine and regular medicine is whether or not things have been proven effective. And we find, for example, that there's good scientific evidence for biofeedback and relaxation therapy, and we also use them as an adjunct. major problem is some people's insurance companies won't pay for that. So we'll talk to our physicians and our health. There's sometimes things online that people can learn to do. There's good scientific evidence that they're good for the treatment of migraine. So we try to do that. We try to get people to exercise regularly, go to bed at the regular time, get up the regular time, eat regular meals. These, I think, are things that can build into your lifetime to help you. I would like to thank my guest, Dr. Stephen Silberstein, Professor of Neurology and Director of the Jefferson Headache Center at Thomas Jefferson University. Dr. Silberstein, thank you for being our guest on NeuroFrontiers today. Thank you so much for having me today. You've been listening to NeuroFrontiers on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. NeuroFrontiers is produced in cooperation with the American Academy of Neurology. For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com which now features on-demand podcasts.